for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I am really excited about this topic today because I've known one person who had an outbreak of mycoplasma on her farm a number of years ago. But other than that, I personally have had no experience with it. And so I haven't looked into it a whole lot. But as I was preparing for today's interview, I learned a lot of really interesting things and I'm looking forward to learning some more. And we are joined today by Dr. Claire Burbick from the Washington Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory to talk about mycoplasma in goats. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Burbick. Thank you so much for having me. I am so surprised at some of the stuff I was reading about mycoplasma today because the symptoms are just kind of all over the place. The testing is some of the strangest I've ever heard of. So let's just get right to it. Can you go ahead and talk about the symptoms a little? And how crazy is it that like, if you could have one goat that has mastitis, another goat that has arthritis and another goat that has pneumonia, that that could all be related? Yeah. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts about mycoplasma infection is that it's really complex. And so you can have what seems to be a lot of unrelated things. And typically those would be a complex or syndrome that would involve mastitis. It could involve eye infections. It could involve uh, joint infections and it can involve respiratory disease and even abortions. So um, you can see a lot of really different types of presentations. And usually you're seeing multiple of those things within one herd. So you'll see like, oh, you have a few does that have mastitis, and then you have some kids with swollen joints and maybe some floppy ears. There could be some coughing goats in there as well. And that can all be signs of a mycoplasma problem. Because you're seeing the diversity of disease, that might actually put mycoplasma on your radar just because you're like, wait a second, I have all these very random things and a few goats here and there, but they could all be very tied together because of the way mycoplasma works. Yeah, that is just amazing. So what kind of testing is available then? So the testing is interesting. <laughs> um, so unfortunately, it can be a little bit difficult to actually diagnose mycoplasma infection, which kind of goes along with it being this sort of nebulous, you know, disease causing agent within a herd. And so the easiest way I would say to diagnose it is if you have an animal that's succumbed to the disease, and we're actually able to get tissue, so lung tissue, um, synovial tissue, mammary gland tissue, things like that um, would probably give us our best hope. And it's a little bit tricky because mycoplasmas are very fiddly. They're very fastidious. They're hard to grow. They have really um, interesting requirements for growth on media. And so a lot of labs might not necessarily have the media appropriate for that particular mycoplasma to be able to culture it. So a lot of times, if the lesions in the animal look consistent with the mycoplasma infection, we'll try and do some PCR or molecular testing from tissues, samples that are collected from animals that have died. 
for antemortem diagnosis. So when animals are just sick on the farm, there's a lot of different sample types that could potentially be used. And there's recommendations to actually submit kind of a diverse array, um, sometimes to really try and get at the mycoplasma diagnosis. So that could be potentially ear swabs, like you said, we can actually um, see mycoplasma colonization in the ear canal. And so that can be a place. Milk, obviously, if there's mastitis problems, joint fluid, respiratory secretions, those are probably the most common for depending on what you're seeing, if it's more respiratory versus joint versus mastitis. And if you're seeing maybe some reproductive issues, a vaginal swab, something from the reproductive tract could be used as well. The only caveat to some of that is that there's a lot of mycoplasma that just hangs out on mucosal membranes. It's And it can really complicate trying to find the more bad actor mycoplasmas because, you know, they're obviously the same genus. They're, you know, can be closely related, but Unfortunately, one could be normal flora or what we would consider normal flora, and one might be something that we would consider more of a primary pathogen. Um, So that also kind of complicates how we do it. So trying to find the right body site niche can be challenging. The growth of them in the culture is challenging. PCR can be challenging because, you know, depending how specific we look, we might miss other things. You kind of really have to work at getting a diagnosis. Um, Unfortunately, it can be pretty challenging. Yeah, this sounds like the most challenging disease we've ever talked about on the show. (laughs) I mean, it's just all over the place in terms of symptoms, and then the testing is challenging. So I was reading about this, and like so many other things, it's contagious, and you usually bring it onto your farm with the purchase of a new animal. So, you know, if you've got a closed herd and you're buying new animals, and you put those new animals into quarantine, is there some kind of testing that you could do with the animals while they're in quarantine to make sure that they're not carrying mycoplasma? (laughs) That is a very, very fraught question. (laughs) So, you know, obviously you can sample mucosal surfaces, so nasal cavity, reproductive tract, ear you know, like we talked about. The problem is, is that it's not a guarantee that you're going to pick it up. So it can kind of hide out in various places, and that might not be the place you're sampling in that particular animal, or it could be very low levels, which are below our level of detection. So it's really difficult to evaluate individual animals to say, oh, this one is fine, this one's not fine. So usually when I talk to people, and it's kind of unsatisfying, is really know the health history of the herd that you're going to be purchasing at. Do they have respiratory issues? Have they had mastitis? Have they had joint, you know, what are some of the health concerns that have been dealt with, you know, kind of historically there, which could give you maybe some sense that, you know, it's well managed, they have very little disease that they're dealing with. And so likely those animals are coming from a place that, you know, hasn't overly had to deal with it, if that makes sense. I mean, I I think one of the issues, you know, that also is very difficult with mycoplasmas, we have these kind of, you know, chronic carriers. um, And so those ones are really just super, super difficult to detect. And so kind of the recommendation is really to just, you know, try to know where you're getting the animals, 
make sure that they have a good physical exam. They, they appear to be very healthy when they are moved, you know, and have gone through a stressful situation such as movement, that they do have a quarantine period. So you can see if there's anything developing and then obviously monitoring anything that's going on, you know, once those new animals are introduced, you know, I think one of the big kind of X factors that goes along with a lot of what's going on with the mycoplasmas that we see in the United States is that it's really kind of a component of the what we call diseases of management. And so if your animals have a good plane of nutrition, they're not having parasite burdens, they're not overcrowded, you know, they're in an environment that reduces stress on them, the likelihood of developing a mycoplasma um, situation is reduced. So you can actually kind of hedge your bets a little bit with just kind of your management approach, even if you can't necessarily keep mycoplasmas out of your herd in a very easy manner. So that's kind of why I try and, um, you know, really emphasize that uh, mycoplasmas can be managed with good management, kind of along with other bacterial infections and trying to make sure that we're not setting up animals and making them more susceptible to things that kind of are normally kicking around in the herd. Okay. The person I knew who had an outbreak in her herd has probably been 10 years now. The thing that she had the problem with was kids dying from pneumonia. They would seem like they were healthy and then she would go out there and they would be dead. And initially the necropsies were just saying pneumonia. And then I guess somebody got the idea like, oh, maybe mycoplasma is at play here. And they figured that out. And with all the testing that they did, they could never figure out where it came from. Like all of her adult does were testing negative, even though like what I was reading is that it is transmitted through the milk. So the kids were getting it through the milk and then to get it under control, they basically started treating the whole herd similar to what you would if they had CAE or something, which was to take all the kids away at birth and pasteurize the milk. Is that pretty much what you have to do once you recognize that you have a problem? Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the things, again, it kind of goes back to looking at those management factors because there's been some publications I was just kind of looking at, you know, reviews of stuff where there were situations, it may be pneumonias, it may be joint infections in those kids, but really, you know, we can use sanitation, you know, because they're getting it from the older animals. And so, you know, contact with um, older colonized animals would be a risk, making sure that anything that is traveling between those older animals and the kids, which would be you, because <laughs> um, you would definitely be a source of potential uh, transmission as well, but also bottles, um, anything that is being used to feed them, any, you know, fences that they can touch noses would be something. And I think a, a lot of the interventions at that point would be to just, you know, try and break that cycle of transmission until they're less susceptible, you know, as they get older. So in the literature, that's really what's recommended is to try and manage away from it through, you know, sanitation, uh, segregating animals by age is a good one you know, making sure that you're not introducing new animals from unknown sources, et cetera, um, and making sure that there's no underlying mineral deficiencies or um, anything like that as well. Other diseases that could potentially be making them more susceptible. So are kids more likely to get it than other adults then? 
Yeah. In general, for the respiratory joint stuff, you would see that mastitis seems to be the bigger concern with the older animals, but they can certainly get kind of the whole spectrum as well. And it's a little bit tricky to to kind of generalize because one of the also interesting things about mycoplasmas is there's a lot of variation, strain variation. So that can really make things more or less virulent. So you could have a totally naive herd that gets introduced, you know, a very virulent strain of one of the mycoplasmas that can just really, really kind of decimate all age groups. Or you can have the situation where, you know, you have kind of a basal level of infection, and then it's just the young animals that are newly exposed that are the most affected. Okay. So like if you brought in one adult doe that had it, it seems like her kids would be pretty likely to have it because of their proximity to her and their nursing and all that kind of stuff. Would she be likely to give it to other goats? Is it mostly transmitted through bodily fluids or? Yeah. So it kind of the most likely way that it would be transmitted is through kind of nose to nose contact. There is some data to suggest that it can be aerosolized and travel a little ways, but it's mostly through close contact. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I found interesting in um, sheep, goat, and servant medicine is they mentioned that they might be related to ear mites or that ear mites could play a role in transmission. Is it a special ear mite or just any ear mite? So if somebody has a goat with ear mites, could that be a mycoplasma carrier? Of course, it has to have it, but is it a separate species of ear mite or no? So I think there was suggestion that maybe it could be, so we kind of have like two kinds of insect vectors, we call them mechanical vectors, which are, they're not getting infected themselves, but they're able to just because it's, they're contaminated with the pathogen that they can then move the pathogen, you know, on their feet or their mouth parts or whatever into another um, susceptible animal. And so that, you know, certainly is possible, but I don't think it's been, you know, terribly well explored or documented. I mean, it would make sense if an ear mite from an infected animal that had some, you know, earwax or debris that was on it that, you know, was able to get to another animal that that's possible. But I think probably the bigger issue is just that nose to nose contact. Okay, good to know. And then it sounds like it's going to be challenging, but I'm going to ask how challenging is it to treat these? Like is a mycoplasma mastitis worse than your standard mastitis or the mycoplasma pneumonia worse than other pneumonias? So it can be. And it, the sad part about all of this is there's not a ton of controlled studies that really look at therapy for treating these diseases. Mycoplasma is a little bit interesting. It doesn't have a cell wall. So beta-lactam drugs like penicillins and things like that are not going to be effective just because of the way the bacteria is. And so there are um, studies that have used antimicrobials, but there's kind of this question mark of, you know, are we creating more of a carrier state by using antimicrobials? Is it really being necessarily eradicated? 
Is it more of just sort of like a decay that needs to happen for the bacteria to go away? Do they ever go away? I think there's a lot of question marks there. Antimicrobial therapy does seem to help um, resolve clinical signs. So I think it can be effective that way, but will it actually what we call, you know, give a microbiologic cure. So get rid of the bacteria. That is a little bit of a gray area. And I think a lot of it is trying, you know, how do you sample? Where is it hanging out? You know, it can kind of go to a a lot of different places because it causes a lot of different things. And so it can be complicated to say, oh, we got rid of it. It's gone. You know, it's a little bit tricky to kind of say, oh yeah, we got rid of it. But antibiotics have been shown to help if you catch it very early in infection. Okay. Do we know if um, animals can become immune to it once they have it? So the one also really unique thing about mycoplasma is they actually will change a lot of their surface molecules to avoid and evade the immune system. And so that's why we, you know, we don't have really great or any vaccines for mycoplasma because it's really great at changing what the immune response is, is reacting to. And then you'll have this other, you know, population with a different surface protein come up that the immune system is not able to recognize from the previous response. So I think you can get some kind of partial immunity, but it's really tough because that's what it does. It wants to live on those mucosal membranes. It doesn't want to get kicked out by the immune system. And it's really cleverly adapted in changing its surface uh, molecules to avoid the immune system. So no, (laughs) long-winded answer. No. (laughs) Wow. This is like the most interesting disease. I really like I don't know. I've just never heard of a disease so interesting. Like everything about this just kind of seems to be like, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes, exactly. You've mentioned a lot of really great things here, like talking about like, you know, management, of course. I know I always come back to nutrition a lot, how important that is for the health of your goats and stuff and your sanitation and management, all that stuff. So we've already talked about the fact that there's like really not a great test that you can do when you bring new animals into the herd. Is there really anything that people can do? Anything else? Like, I love all the suggestions you have already, but is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that people can do to prevent this coming into their herd? Not that I can think of. I think it's really, really tough with mycoplasma. Um, We really are, I think, at a pretty distinct disadvantage. I think luckily we can kind of manage in a way to reduce, you know, the risk and reduce the severity of the potential disease. But yeah, I think it's really, really tough and, you know, just really having a good handle on what testing, what health problems there have been from, you know, the herd of origin, if that's possible. You know, sometimes it's tricky to get that information, but I think that historical data can give you more confidence kind of in what you're bringing on farm um, more than just a single point in time test because we can miss it. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have serology tests. You know, we can't surveil, you know, through that to say, oh, this herd likely has mycoplasma or not. So it, yeah, it's really tricky. Yeah, it sounds like it. I know when I was reading about it, I was really surprised by all of the different types of mycoplasma 
And then just knowing that they can, I don't know, is mutate is the right word. Are they mutating and that's why, or changing, or is it just that there's a lot of different kinds that make this so difficult to treat and impossible to come up with a vaccine? Yeah, I think um, it's sort of like a mutation. It's, but they're really built to swap out all these different genes for proteins. So it's kind of their normal part of how they, you know, are have these kind of quasi species, I guess you would say, where they try and, you know, not be very homogeneous so that at least somebody is going to be able to hang out there (laughs) based on how they're expressing their different proteins. Well, as I'm listening to this, I think some people may be listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, this is completely hopeless. It's just like (laughs) the opposite of winning the lottery. Um, But I think the important thing that we can say here is that if you have all of a sudden a lot of goats that are sick with things that appear to be completely unrelated, Mm -hmm. that mycoplasma should be on your radar. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of times too, what we're seeing with mycoplasmas is that they're in coordination with other things like pasture laceae. So like, you know, other bacteria that cause respiratory disease, or maybe there's CAE in the background causing some immune dysfunction or other virus. So it's really sort of, again, and maybe I just harp on this too much, but we can manage it with, with management to really kind of reduce the likelihood that it's going to rear its ugly head. You know, some situations, like I said, super naive herd, getting a strain introduced, that can be a totally different situation. And I think that would definitely be on the radar. I mean, but I think, you know, for the the majority of situations, a lot of times it's just under the radar, but a component of these, what we call polymicrobial infections that can get in there and find a little toehold um, if there's any stress or anything going on in the herd. And that's really where we see a lot of these very nebulous, like a little bit of pneumonia, a little bit of mastitis. That's kind of what the bigger challenge, more common situation is. Yeah. Well, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this incredibly complex disease. Yeah. I just wanted to mention one other thing. So We have, you know, mycoplasmas that are in the United States that we run up against causing these kind of different syndromes, but there's a couple of mycoplasmas that we consider foreign animal diseases, which I think is just important to remember, and that's mycoplasma agalactiae. Um, And then there's the mycoplasma that causes contagious caprine pleuronemonia, um, which is mycoplasma capricolum subspecies capronemoniae, which is a ridiculously long name. But those are actually reportable diseases. They're foreign animal diseases. We don't have them in the United States. And they can cause, so uh, the capronemoniae causes really, really devastating pleuronemonia, just, I mean, could take out a whole herd. I mean, it's like that bad. Um, Almost all the animals succumb to the infection and die, which is terrible. And then the agalactiae, which causes a lot of the mastitis, joint infections, eye infections and stuff, but um, more so the significant mastitis issues and can just be very devastating, especially in the dairy goat world. So both of those we don't see in the United States, but should kind of be in the back of people's mind too, because, you know, 
things happen, animals travel, you know, stuff can come in in weird ways, but um, just know that there's some mycoplasmas that really raise the red flag and can be somewhat difficult to differentiate from the ones that we see in the United States. Not to scare everybody to death, but it's always good to have, you know, just a little bit of like, hey, you know, some of these can be pretty important for goat health, you know, in the United States. Yeah, exactly. So if somebody traveled to a foreign country and they were on a farm or in a rural area, is that something that they could pick up on their shoes and bring back? It's possible, but mycoplasmas are not super hardy. They don't like to be in the environment. So, you know, I would say if it was like foot and mouth disease, yes, that could be a problem. And there's, you know, some recommendations about not going on a farm for a certain period of time once you come back, if you've been in certain countries. So, you know, it's certainly possible. I would recommend, you know, being careful about what you wear, you know, if you're going to another farm, especially in a country that has some of these diseases, and then coming back, maybe just getting rid of all of that stuff, (laughs) leaving it behind. And yeah, and and really trying to make sure that you're adhering to good biosecurity coming in and off of premises. Yeah. Yeah, that's always good advice. Thanks for mentioning that. And thank you for joining us today to talk about this really complex disease. I think this will definitely be helpful for people if they're ever faced with what looks like a lot of completely unrelated illnesses in their herd. Yeah, I think it's one that's, I call it tiny but mighty disease. (laughs) It's the smallest bacteria, but it can cause a lot of problems. Oh, yeah. It is fascinating. Like, if I could have a favorite disease, well, I guess I can. Why not? My favorite disease now is mycoplasmic. Like, it's just (laughs) the weirdest. It is. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a good one. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Love Goats Podcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.